0: From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it's Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Congressman Steve Scalise won a secret ballot vote among Republicans to be nominated as
1: the next Speaker of the House, but just barely. It was a really close vote. I'm Tia Mitchell, live in Washington. Steve Scalise isn't Speaker yet, and some say it could get really messy on the House floor, but there's a chance he may never
2: become Speaker. I'm Bill Nigat. President Biden is resolute in his support for Israel. We must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. But some elected leaders in Georgia are struggling to find the right tone for talking about the horrific Hamas terrorist attack and Israel's response.
0: We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Well Bill and Tia, I mean what a wild ride this has been. Tia, I loved seeing you in D.C. this week.
1: Yes, it was so great. Thank you for visiting. Thank you for helping to pass the time during the stakeout of these (laughs) House Republican (laughs) meetings. And you, um, I hope Bill and Greg will be able to come visit soon. And you, Shaney B.
2: You know, I have to say, yesterday Tia and Patricia was such an exciting day to realize that We're going to be live on the radio starting on October 30th. And to be able to have days where people like where you two up there on the hill outside the Republican conference, where they were voting on their nominee for speaker, it's just live radio at its best. It was very exciting for me.
0: Oh, well, I'm so glad we could bring you into our world on the Capitol Hill beat bill. Um, Yeah, it was terrific. And I have to say, Tia is much beloved on Capitol Hill. Pe- we were walking through the hallways. We are like, hey, Tia, hey, Tia. So anyway, I felt like a celebrity traveling with <laughs> Tia around the hill, even though I thought I knew people, but she really knows people. Um, well, coming up on today's Politically Georgia, we're going to talk about all of that and more. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In a closed-door session yesterday, House Republicans nominated Majority Leader Steve Scalise as their candidate for speaker. He beat Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, but just barely. Scalise still needs to get 217 Republican votes to become the House speaker, but that means he can only lose four GOP votes on the floor. And at the moment, he's got many more opposed to him than that, including Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Tia, you and I have both been talking to House members throughout the week. I was a little bit startled by the chaos I saw in Washington. I don't know why, Um, but tell me from your perspective right now in Washington, where do things stand for Steve Scalise today?
1: Honestly, from my perspective, it's doesn't. There's not a path right now for Steve Scalise to become House Speaker, which is not great for Steve Scalise, but it has much bigger repercussions because now it's leading to the question, is there any Republican who can become Speaker? And if not, we are literally at a congressional standstill right now and for the foreseeable future. Okay,
0: bring us up to speed quickly on where the Georgia House delegation is among the Republicans, because there's a split in the Georgia delegation just like there is in the entire
1: House so you know there is a split but there are some unknowns. so here's what we do know we know that people like um drew ferguson austin scott buddy carter they were always team scalise so they're good mike collins didn't really say who he supported before the uh republican nomination vote on wednesday but he came out saying hey that was like the primary we've got our guy We go to the floor supporting our guy. He's now Team Scalise. So that's four in Georgia. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who she didn't say who she was supporting, but she came out of that meeting saying, I'm with Jim Jordan and I'm not changing. So that's a vote for Jim Jordan. That's a vote that Scalise can't get. Um, Rich McCormick came out of the meeting saying, Scalise doesn't have consensus we shouldn't go to the floor with Scalise. So that's another person not ready to vote for Scalise. And then we're still uncertain. I'm really hoping to hear from Representative Andrew Clyde soon because he's somebody that we don't know where he stands. He's naturally, he supported Jordan going into that nomination vote. We don't know if he's still in Jim Jordan's camp or whether he's decided to support Scalise. We don't know. Okay, so the
0: interesting part for me here is that Scalise does have a majority, a bare majority. Among those opposed to Scalise, there appear to be multiple different objections to Scalise. And Marjorie Taylor Greene has one of um, the the more unusual. She has said that she is simply worried about his health. And we have a bit of the interview that you did with Yesterday on Capitol Hill.
2: I like Steve Scalise a lot. I really do as a person. Um, it's, but it's a pretty personal feeling to me. My dad died in April of 2021 with cancer. So I witnessed that battle. And out of the most compassion, uh, I'm saying that I would love to see Steve dedicate all his time and energy to beating cancer.
0: So, Bill, I mean, she sounds really sincere right there. I mean, you can tell that's very emotional for her um, talking about her dad and then connecting that to Steve Scalise. Um, When I saw Scalise on the Hill this week, he actually looks extremely healthy. He does wear a mask around groups, but then once he gets in front of the microphones, takes it off. So he doesn't look like somebody who is debilitated by cancer. But so this is Green's reason. We have other reasons from other members, and some of those members are very conservative. And that's why they like Jim Jordan. Others are more moderate but have different objections to Scalise. Where do you think this puts House Republicans right now?
2: In the same kind of chaos they had coming out of the vote uh, against Kevin McCarthy. And and there are many people who will say, as I'm sure you heard on the Hill, that uh, the seeds for the current chaos began when those eight uh, dissident Republicans refused to support uh, McCarthy's continuation as Speaker. So I I have a, a question about all this. Why do you, given given what happened to McCarthy, given what happened to John Boehner, given what happened to Paul Ryan, why do you want to become Speaker of the United States House? I get it's a powerful position. I also get we've all been in the Speaker's suite on, in the, Capitol, it's a beautiful, beautiful space to occupy the balcony overlooking the mall and the Washington Monument. All of that is a trapping of power that's pretty powerful. But considering the job is impossible, why does anybody want it?
0: Well, I mean, a few things. Uh, first of all, every um, Capitol building on that house side is named for a speaker. You could get a building name for you. And There are a lot of bells and whistles that come along with this job. Apparently, not much power and a whole lot of grief. Um, There is a saying in Washington that every member, I mean, every memoir should be titled if they'd only listen to me. Like everybody thinks they would do a better job than the person who is messing up the current big job. So I do think most people look at what um, McCarthy, many people, not most, many people were looking at what McCarthy was doing and saying, why are you just gratuitously making people mad? Why is this so personal for you? I would do it differently. Um, there are all kinds of reasons somebody wants to be the speaker. Scalise has been the majority leader for mm-hmm. many, many years under under uh, McCarthy. And I think probably does see ways that he could lead this caucus with a little less friction. But ironically, he has less support right now than McCarthy ever did. Tia, is there a, you said there's not really a path forward for Scalise right now. But weigh in on what Bill was just talking about.
1: Yeah, I I agree that I think Steve Scalise and McCarthy were kind of frenemies, like they had to work together because Scalise was majority leader, McCarthy was speaker, but they are not necessarily allies. There was always tension between their camps. Quite frankly, McCarthy folks always thought that Scalise was waiting in the wings for his chance to like, either take him out or succeed him as Speaker, which is part of the reason why Scalise is struggling to get support now, because there are McCarthy allies who just kind of, based on that, don't think it's fair that like, okay, eight Republicans took out McCarthy, and then everyone else behind McCarthy just gets to move up. Scalise moves up to Speaker. You know, Whip Emmer wants to move up to Majority Leader. So a lot of this, unfortunately, is boiling down to like sheer like partisan t- politics and ambition and personality conflicts. Um, and but at the end of the day, the speaker is like, if you know, third, second in line to the presidency, after the vice president, um, it's a very powerful position. And I do think it's just one of those. I think sometimes it's hard for us normal folks, if you will, to get in the mind of a politician. But you can't be a politician at these upper levels if you don't have a bit of hubris, a bit of ego, you know, that those are all qualities that you need to be a successful politician. Right.
0: One quick thing though, I mean Scalise in his remarks to reporters and to his members said, I want to calm this situation down. I want to provide leadership. We need to do aid to Israel. We need to just move forward. So there's a public service message to this, but you're exactly right. I mean, these are very prestigious dream jobs beyond a dream job it's so there is so much honor to being the house speaker and i think a lot every house member aspires to that just about so um i can, i do actually see why somebody would want to be the house speaker um but it's just not coming together yet for Scalise
2: you know what i'm uh you, you and tia of course were up on the hill uh yesterday and we got a chance to talk to you in the first segment of the podcast then you both went off to cover what was happening in that closed-door uh, Republican conference meeting. But here is one of the questions that uh, uh, Greg Bluestein and I talked about, and I think it would be great to hear uh, both of your take on this. We, we, Marjorie Taylor Greene is in a really interesting position right now. She, When she decided during the Kevin McCarthy efforts to become speaker, to become one of his strongest allies, to back him continuously, to continue to do that even as his job was threatened, it made her a player on the Hill in a way that she had never been before. She moved from being sort of an outsider who made outrageous statements to being a significant power in the Republican conference in the House. Where does she go now? What? How does this change the dynamic of her continuing as a powerful Force when we're still trying to figure out who the next speaker is going to be.
1: Do you weigh in on that? I was going to say that's part of the reason, like, you can't separate. And I don't mean when I say that every politician has hubris and ego and aspirations. That doesn't mean they don't also have policy. You can't have the policy without the politics. And you can't have the politics while ignoring the policy. So as a case study is Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, politically, Jim Jordan probably aligns with her better. That would probably make her time on the Hill more comfortable should Jim Jordan become House Speaker. And you can't ignore, like, the personal benefits that would probably come if Jim Jordan were Speaker and not Steve Scalise. They're more aligned. They're more allied. Again, Jim Jordan, when the House Freedom Caucus was pushing Marjorie Taylor Greene out, Jim Jordan fought to keep her in the caucus. So, you know, when she talked about wanting Steve Scalise to focus on his cancer treatment, and I do think she was sincere and she was very much in our interview, like, I don't want to come across as being mean. Please um, emphasize if you talk about my statements that I'm coming from a place of concern about Steve Scalise. But she also, you know, I asked her, well, let's make all things equal. If Steve Scalise weren't undergoing cancer treatment. Would you support him over Jim Jordan? And she said there were still policy differences. She felt that she liked Jim Jordan's answers on things like the appropriations process better than Scalise. Um, So it's all wrapped up in there together. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, I don't think Steve Scalise would, um, you know, just totally turn his back on her. He saw how McCarthy was able to embrace Marjorie Taylor Greene in a way that benefited them both. But they don't have the relationship that she has with Jim Jordan, and that matters.
0: Yeah, and truly, we don't know what this means for Green because we don't know who's going to be the next next House Speaker. She may be throwing her weight behind who is the next House Speaker. We just don't even know who that is right now. Um, Another player we cannot ignore in all of this is Donald Trump. Because Trump was vocally supportive of Jim Jordan um, before this vote happened. First of all, that didn't win the votes for Jim Jordan. I think that's an interesting piece of this puzzle that um, there was a day when something that Donald Trump said, that is the way it went in the House. Now, this was a secret ballot, and it makes it a lot easier to go up against Trump when it's a secret ballot. He's never going to know who wasn't on his side. But Trump has been very quiet since Steve Scalise came out the winner. He has not endorsed Steve Scalise. And so that is not giving any of those... Uh, visibly pro-Trump supporters any reason to come off of this opposition to Scalise and get behind him. And so um, Bill, a quick sidebar, Donald Trump cannot be the speaker as he volunteered (laughs) because there is a House uh, caucus rule, a Republican caucus rule that bars somebody under felony indictment from being speaker. Just a sidebar. Um, (laughs) But he's not helping the process right now, Bill.
2: No, and uh, in in some ways, the fact that his uh, uh, support for Jim Jordan didn't lead to Jordan winning the uh, vote for the nomination yesterday. Is a continuation of the losses that Donald Trump's candidates in the 2022 election cycle uh, took, especially here in Georgia, uh, where virtually all of them went down, most notably, of course, uh, Hershel Walker um, losing the Senate race. Um, and uh, and and before that, David Perdue not getting getting just uh, buried by uh, uh, Governor Kemp in the Republican gubernatorial primary. So it does say something about whether Trump can necessarily um, affect voters on 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 other matters and other candidates beyond his own candidacy.
0: Yes. And if you pull out from all of the um, kind of personality conflicts and genuine policy differences between these two gentlemen and the entire House caucus, if you pull out and look at what is happening in the country and the world, I think that split screen is very unhelpful to Republicans right now. And I was flying back on the plane from D.C. last night uh, there were literally two separate feeds on. One was of um, the House Republicans kind of scrambling like marbles through the hallway trying to figure out who their next leader is going to be. And they're at an impasse. At the exact same time, you see bombs going off in Israel and just these atrocities being committed. And the United States, Tia, um, United States Congress has its hands tied until we have a breakthrough um, in Israel. And And by the way, there is still a government shutdown looming that nobody's really talking about right now.
1: Right. Government funding runs out November 17th. And um, and I think we shouldn't put it all on the House. The Senate has been on recess for yep. a week and a half. Yep. Now, again, appropriations bills have to start in the House and go over to the Senate. But there are some appropriations bills that have passed in the House that the Senate really isn't dealing with. Um and so we're gonna get back into crunch time, but the House cannot move legislation right now. The House needs a speaker, or they need to change their rules to allow a caretaker speaker, an interim speaker um, have more power. But again, the politics gets in the way. Right now, the interim speaker is Patrick McHenry, handpicked by Kevin McCarthy. So if you were no fan of Kevin McCarthy, then you probably aren't necessarily a fan of empowering interim Speaker McHenry to do anything further than what he's doing right now, which is trying to facilitate a new Speaker election. So it's terrible timing. Um, And also Republicans are very aware that, you know, they're being called the clown show back home. Yesterday, there was a guy outside of the Capitol who had a sign that said G O P, but the O was a clown emoji. And he was just walking back and forth <laughs> in front of the house side of the Capitol. And, you know, th- that's kind of like a, a depiction of what a lot of people are saying back at home. And they don't like that. So they want to move forward. But again, there's no, right now, there's no clear path to moving forward. We're, we're, as we, we talk right now, there are no meetings scheduled today. You know, we literally don't know what's going to happen.
0: Well, as we're taping this, the House is scheduled to gobble into session at 12 o'clock. The last two days, they've been in session about two minutes each. I think yesterday they stretched that to three minutes, but there's nothing else planned. And it is really something they've the Republicans ha- have a have a significant problem that they need to really start to work their way out of. Um, We will talk about all that and more uh, as we continue to get through this week. And just ahead, most political leaders here in Georgia and across the country have been quick to issue statements expressing their unequivocal support for Israel in the aftermath of the Hamas terrorist attacks. But some politicians are learning that what they're saying is putting them on a slippery slope with voters. That's just ahead. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal Constitution. It's the only way you have to subscribe. But you can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. So you always know, What's really going on? Bill, right now, support for Israel is pouring in from most elected officials, almost unanimously, not entirely, um, but also from members of the greatest greater community. But some politicians are finding out, Bill, that it there really is a needle to thread on this issue in their public statements. Um, we have seen uh, Congressman Hank Johnson issue one statement about what was happening in Israel and then having to walk that back With a second statement, Raphael Warnock offered a prayer for the Israeli um, rally here in Atlanta, um, which was not entirely well-received. We want to get into the details of both of those because I think it's really important to know exactly what was said, um, but it really is stirring up emotions um, on many, many sides of this issue.
2: Yeah, The starting point is to say that um, this was virtually an apocalyptic attack by Hamas on Israel. Um, we now know well over a thousand uh, Israelis uh, killed, um, m- well over a hundred being held hostage. We've seen now some horrendous images of uh, babies being having been slaughtered as uh, Hamas came through villages near the West Bank. So a- as a starting point, there has never been an attack on Israel uh, as uh, as devastating and horrific as uh, this one is. So, with that in mind, uh, political leaders who have not, here in this country, especially, who have not shown unequivocal, uh, complete support for Israel's right to defend themselves, have been getting some pushback. Hank Johnson is a great example of that. So, let me read you a portion of the statement that his office put out in the immediate aftermath of the um uh, attack johnson said quote, my prayers are toward a quick end to the violence unleashed by hamas against the state of israel and my thoughts and prayers are with the innocent people of israel and gaza and for the families and friends here and elsewhere who are concerned and fearful for their safety violence and war do not bring peace only dialogue can do so. And then he went on to say that the world has ignored the issue of a Palestinian homeland um, and that until that's resolved, there won't be peace. You, you, right now, there is no tolerance for a politician like Hank Johnson to say, we have to figure out what to do about the Palestinian uh, crisis. He, he may very well be right. But right now, he, he got enormous pushback. He withdrew mm-hmm. that statement. Um, Bill, can I
1: stop you though? Before you move on to Hank Johnson's new statement, can you explain why or the context to why people felt it was problematic other than we will not tolerate any conversation about that is considered sympathetic towards Palestine? Is that it? Like people who are pro-Israel don't want to talk about where Palestine needs help? Like what was... Problematic in what Hank Johnson said.
2: Um, so let's uh, first of all, it's not a question of my opinion, but let's talk about right. No, i but what was the community.
1: interpretation by those? Who I, felt I think it there was are several
2: issues here. Um, one is every political uh, uh, leader, elected official, who said, "Let's, we've got to find a peaceful solution," has been getting pushback. Which, by the way, and I'll come back to Hank Johnson. Patricia, you asked the question, brings us to Raphael Warnock, pastor. Raphael uh, Warnock, who went to the rally in Sandy Springs the other night, sent a
0: sent a video. He uh, he was not there, right? That's
2: right. Uh, Thank you for Mm correcting that. Sent a video, and as a pastor, gave a prayer for peace, and was largely booed by people who said this is not the time to be talking about peace. So, to go back to your uh, question, Tia, which I think is a reasonable one, again. We're talking about a time in which Israel has faced the most horrific attacks it has experienced, perhaps in its history. Even the 1973 Yom Kippur War um, is not as significant as what we saw in terms of the barbarism of these attacks. So I think, Tia, it's simply a matter of the Jewish community particularly saying right now, we can't, we have to put aside talk about Palestinians and what their rights are, and and we have to focus on Israel winning this war. That may not be the most humanitarian approach to this. It may be perfectly appropriate to say there are innocent people in in uh, Gaza whose lives are now at risk. But to be an American politician who decides to go there right now, Patricia, I think it's very, very problematic.
0: Well, let's hear what Hank Johnson said in his follow-up statement.
2: Oh, I, I don't have his follow up statement. <laughs> I just had his I'll first statement. I'll pull it statement. up. I'll
0: pull it up. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have Tia uh, pull up. We're gonna have Tia do some quick original research to hear what Hank Johnson said. But I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But I think what you're saying is there is no other issue to discuss until the war is over. There, we can't talk about anything else until this violence on Israel, these atrocities are over. Um, at, there, are, We are also now starting to see images out of Gaza of the results of the bombings. And so I think it is starting to get so emotional. Um, but for people, particularly Jews here in America, who are here because of the Holocaust, their families fled the Holocaust, they're here only because their own family was exterminated. And then to be watching this unfold on social media is just, I think it's an emotional place that um, not every American politician is going to have the sensitivities to really know until they hear it from the Jewish community. And they're, they're hearing it now from the Jewish community. I think
2: that's right. And again, this is not my, I'm not expressing personal opinion here. I'm talking about the incredible nuance of how you talk about violence against the Palestinians in Gaza at a time when uh, the Jewish world is shell-shocked by the horrific nature of the attacks uh, on Israel. So if I can, can I can I read you one other statement that speaks to that? Um, and I do
1: have Hank Johnson's statement. Oh, go ahead. Okay, let's do Hank go Johnson's ahead. statement first. His statement, so he put out one statement, and then here's the follow-up statement that he put out on Monday. I must express my absolute horror at the scope and scale of the killing and carnage perpetrated upon innocent infants, children, teenagers, the elderly, as well as men and women for simply being citizens of Israel. I condemn the terrorist group Hamas unequivocally for perpetrating this brutal assault on civilians. There is no justification for it. And I stand with righteous people who stand with Israel and her citizens and friends amidst the gloom of this unprecedented attack. Okay, So much more pro-israel um you know he got you gotta say i condemn hamas that seems to be very important for people and then not really speak to palestinian people in that second statement
0: right so a very thorough unequivocal statement there from hank johnson and and i am quite sure that wasn't he that was formed by members of the jewish community going to him and saying this is why we find your first statement um to be um uh not what it not what they wanted to hear the first time around. Um, let's move on to Senator Raphael Warnock. He sent a video to um the is the rally for Israel in Sandy Springs, and it was played for the group. It was let me put this in context. This did not come out of his Senate office. This was something that he did personally as a pastor, I'm told. So his this was not a, a political statement and he's in a really unusual situation. And we knew there would be moments where this would, he may be pulled in different directions or have different roles to play because he has two of these two jobs. So the video that he sent was not from his Senate office, but rather from his what's described as his pastoral office. Um, uh, So did not include kind of political statements um, but Bill, talk a little bit about that video, and we'll play the audio uh, on the show tomorrow, because I do have that audio that we can share tomorrow. Um, it was uh, something, I'll I'll just give you a few quotes. He talked about um, Israelis in chaos and confusion and grief. Um, as the people of Israel grieve in, un, in the pain of unspeakable loss, um, then he's praying to God for strength now. For the Israelis, for the mothers who are facing this grief, um, then he did also pay, 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 pray for, excuse me, um, the Israelis and the Palestinians, and uh, that got booed. Bill,
2: Let, let's put this in an even larger context, if we may. Uh, before this uh, attack last weekend, and for quite a while after, even before Benjamin Netanyahu won his most recent term as a prime minister by forming a coalition with the farthest right elements uh, in in Israel politics. Even before then, the American Jewish community was having a very significant and at times contentious dialogue about how the Israeli government was treating the Palestinians in the West Bank, in Gaza, the expansion of settlements into the West Bank, Uh, the move away from establishing a two-state solution that would give Palestinians uh, some independence and autonomy. There was an enormous debate that had split many people in the Jewish community. So it isn't as if um, we haven't seen in the past American Jews saying, we think the Israeli government needs to do something to be more, um, uh, to deal with the Palestinian issue. The
0: J Street Caucus has been very vocal about that. Exactly. So it's not unanimous. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
2: All right. Given all that, nevertheless, after these attacks, you're not hearing that argument playing out right now. Um, It may come back soon. We don't know what's going to happen. Here's an interesting, I thought, uh, uh, piece of information about this. Gallup released a poll in May, um, which deals with this very issue of how Democrats particularly are feeling about the um, uh, uh, Palestinian situation and how Israel has dealt with it. And here's what they found out. 49% of the Democrats they polled said they feel more sympathetic toward the Palestinian cause. Only 38% said they felt more sympathetic to what Israel was dealing with Get, given that Israel is surrounded by countries that have declared what they want is to destroy Israel and the Jewish people.
0: Right, but that was before all of this. That's my point. That poll was not. No, no.
2: That's recent. my That's my, and point. I wanna, that's I my
0: wanna, point. Yes. That's I my wanna, point. Mm-hmm.
2: So my point say. is there this has been an issue and a split that's gone on for a long time. Mm-hmm. But right now, any politician who dares to go into that uh, uh, divisive. Uh, area is going to be in trouble.
0: Okay, can and you speak just for one? I'm. I'm going to just ask Bill to speak w- for one second about war not getting booed um, at that rally. Is that something that surprises you that this that the prayer that he gave was not well received?
2: Um, again, given the emotion, it's not. It's not surprising. Do I personally think it's disappointing when a pastor, a pastor in that pastoral role, prays for peace? It's terribly troubling because it, it, it speaks to the fact that we just don't want to hear any talk of finding ways to come together at a time when Israel has felt such a significant attack.
0: Okay, let me read you also the Facebook post that Warnock put up that morning, the morning of the rally. So that was the prayer that he offered for peace. Uh, in the morning on Facebook, on his Senate account, he wrote, The heinous acts of violence visited upon the people of Israel by Hamas, mothers, children, and seniors, including American citizens, were horrific and are rightly condemned by all who believe in human dignity and seek a lasting peace. And so that it it goes on, but it really is focused um, solely and specifically on Israel and, um, and uh, uh, his, uh, I guess, his... Um, more than sympathy has support for um for Israel in that instance. Um Tia, w- I've been cutting you off <laughs> in this conversation way in here.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. I was trying to go in but I also do want to you know hear you guys out. So I'm sorry. It's hard it's hard being the remote one. Um but I the poll you brought up I think is where, what I'm most interested to see in the immediate aftermath of this horrific terrorist attack. I know that sympathies are rightfully with Israel. Um, But in the coming days and weeks, as we see that Israel plans, you know, retaliation, justified retaliation, according to everyone from President Biden on down, but eventually we're going to start hearing stories about Palestinians and the effects of Israel's, uh, you know, retaliation, on palestine which means those sympathies may again go back to where they were in that poll you cited or even more so possibly with the palestinian people and that's what we're talking about long term that's been a trend in democratic politics long term and so it's very complicated we know we also know that unfortunately over the years a lot of the analysis and criticism criticism of the israeli government has been steeped in anti-semitism which has stood in the way of a constructive uh analysis of the issues between israel and palestine but long term i think there will be more americans hoping for peace than advocating for war from either side
2: i think that that tia you're expressing a feeling that is of some concern to the White House. Obviously, President Biden has been a strong ally of Israel since his earliest days in the United States Senate, and he continues to be. And his statement, many will would say the other day, was perhaps the most powerful statement an American president has ever made about support for Israel. Um, the issue becomes, as you say, Israel appears to be on the verge of mounting a full-scale invasion of Gaza. Um, they hope that they can be um, uh, careful, surgical in going after military rather than civilian uh, personnel. But, but, but Patricia and Tia, I- I've been listening to Jonathan Conricus, who is the IDF's international spokesman on this, and this morning, Uh, He's been making a lot of appearances on uh, on cable networks uh, here in the United States, and this morning, if you listen to what was the subtext of his comments, he made it clear that Israel's number one goal is to wipe out Hamas, and it's conceivable, although he didn't say this, that that means that the lives of the hostages could be a price that will be paid for wiping out Hamas. That's the subtext. Certainly nothing he's gonna say out loud. How is that gonna be received in the long run? I think Tia Patricia makes an excellent point. In the long run, is Israel going to pay a public relations price uh, depending on how it, it, it attacks Hamas? And it's something Thomas Friedman wrote about in his column saying Hamas is luring Israel to do exactly this.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, also uh, it is very frequent that the military targets are embedded within civilian populations deliberately in order to um, uh, make it more difficult to be surgical in those attacks. Um, I think there also is immense concern that this could spread beyond the borders mm-hmm. of Gaza, um, that with Iran involved um, tangentially and perhaps directly in that attack, um, there uh, we have a potentially uh, much larger conflict that could spiral out of control beyond the atrocities that we've already seen. And then when you talk about... Um, Uh, hostages that may be seen as collateral damage, including potentially Americans. Um, We are in very, very dark days. Uh, I think it also highlights the need to have the House of Representatives get their act together and get a speaker in place so that we can have a functional U.S. Congress in order to be able to respond to this. Um, But the United States certainly has made its support for Israel unequivocal. Um, Another supporter here in Georgia is Governor Brian Kemp. Mm -hmm. You may see around the state that... uh, Georgia and American flags have been lowered to half-staff. That is because of an executive order from Brian Kemp uh, to have that honor specifically for the 22 Americans killed in that attack and also as a sign of support for the state of Israel from the state of Georgia. Those will be at half-staff through sunset on Saturday. Coming up here on Politically Georgia, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We'll talk about issues closer to home, um, economic issues as well. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
3: Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com indictmentnewsletter indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com indictmentnewsletter indictment newsletter.
0: And we're back with Politically Georgia. Our colleagues at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you informed on all of the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. And now the AJC is putting all of that coverage in one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll get the latest coverage from the AJC and analysis on this topic right to your inbox. Subscribe and sign up for free today at ajc.com indictmentnewsletter indictment newsletter. That's all one word, ajc.com indictmentnewsletter indictment newsletter to get that directly to your inbox. I'm Patricia Murphy here with Bill Nigan in studio and Tia Mitchell, who joins us from the nation's capital. Bill and Tia, a special committee of the state Senate has been reviewing all of the many tax credits that the state gives out to various industries in order to um, entice them to coming here to Georgia or convince them to stay in Georgia or as some special favor for a state representative or state senator's constituent. Um, To make a long story short, there are billions of dollars worth of tax credits embedded within the state budget every year. Um, One of the industries that does not want to take a haircut is the film industry bill because um, they have been the beneficiary all the way back to the days of Nathan Deal, who made this a top priority, um, of very lucrative tax credits in order to convince them to come here, film your TV, movie, and now streaming shows here. It has become a huge industry here in the state. It's now pretty much fully mature. I mean, if you have ever been to Tyler Perry Studios in south of Atlanta, that is a very mature sound studio. It is humongous, and it is just one of dozens of different studios and facilities around the state. So um, uh, opponents of this tax credit now are saying, of all industries, the film tax credit is the one that could probably go because these are these are wealthy people making these movies. But Bill, there was a meeting in Athens recently where the film industry said, not so fast. We need those credits. Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Well, and, and of course, as you know, Patricia, the larger context of this is that for several years now, especially Republicans in the legislature, have been saying it's time to assess all of these uh, tax credits or many of them. And that I think p- partly is uh, sparked by the huge tax credits to Rivian uh, uh, in in Monroe and and to Hyundai down there uh, on the mm-hmm. Georgia. Yeah, hundreds, hundreds of millions of Hundreds of, of millions yes. of dollars. But specifically the tax credit uh, for the film industry has come under fire. Um, uh, uh, Chuck Hufstedler, two sessions ago, uh, put a uh, passed in committee, a uh, measure that would have cut it back from about a billion dollars a year to 900 million a year, something like that. It never really went anywhere. But now with this larger exploration of the tax credits in general, film industry executives are nervous. They think that they've brought an awful lot to the table in terms of employing, they say something like 60,000 Georgians uh, billions of dollars in uh, in income to, to the state. One interesting kind of side note about this, and, and then Tia, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to dominate this, but the New York Times the other day ran a really fascinating feature story about Jackson, Georgia. Jackson, Georgia. I saw I did, that, that was I great. did not know that that's where Stranger Things, the enormously popular show on Netflix was filmed. And the whole point of the article was the people of Jackson, Georgia, since the first the writers' strike and now the actors' strike, have been hurting. They've lost income they, they, because there's no production going on out there. So in some ways, that kind of little feature story makes the case that the film industry is trying to make, which is we have been enormously important to the economy of many communities across the state.
1: So I want to start off by saying, sing along with me. Made in Georgia. (laughs) Like, we've all heard that tagline. And to me, that is, you know, it's branding, but it is the evidence every time we watch a TV show or a film that Georgia's incentives have led to this burst of activity in the state. And you can listen, we can argue, like Patricia said, every incentive there are people who say well do we really need it whether it's for films and tv whether it's incentives for uh electric vehicles and batteries whether it's incentives for regular car production or incentives for building affordable housing and so every time you offer incentives for various industries there are judgment calls you have to make there are trade-offs because at the end of the day you're talking about revenue that you're either repurposing or foregoing that could fund other things like schools hospitals roads and bridges that being said i want to read you guys this is an excerpt from florida today which is the daily paper down in central florida in the space coast it's an article from January of this year about Florida's film tax credit. It says, Florida was once the number three destination in the United States for film and television production, said John Lux, executive director of Film Florida. Today, Florida is not in the top 20, he said. The difference now is that Florida once had financial incentives in place for such productions, but it no longer does. Florida, and I'm going to paraphrase, had various incentive programs for the film industry from 2004 through 2016. And so just in, what, six or seven years, Florida has plummeted in film and TV production because those tax credits were not renewed. Again, that's a judgment call if Georgia wants to follow suit. But I don't think Georgia should assume that if those tax credits are reduced um, or eliminated, That all these productions will just stick around without those incentives.
0: Tia, that is such a great point. There really is a bit of an arms race among states to woo the film industry. And you have to put Texas at the top of that heat. Matthew McConaughey has been uh, running an effort to encourage more groups to come to Texas and lobbying the state legislature there to increase the tax credits there. Um, There's an effort in Nevada um, that's being uh, driven by actors who moved from California to Nevada to encourage that. In Florida, you know, without an income tax, it's hard to have lucrative tax credits, to be honest with you. But it does create a lot of kind of a much more um, uh, diverse set of job opportunities for people here in Georgia, Bill. So if you have um, kids coming out of high school and college who want a role in a creative industry, for example, you used to have to move to California, move to New York, but now those kids can do those jobs right here in Georgia.
2: And we should also point out that, that not only can a, a lot of people stay in Georgia to pursue careers in film and television, there are a lot of people in the crafts end of the industry who have moved to Georgia. Uh, because it is such a booming center for film and television uh, production. But here's um, what uh, uh, the—up until recently, Jeffrey Dorfman was the uh, state's fiscal economist. Our colleague James Salzer wrote a piece about the film industry's efforts to uh, maintain its credit, and he quoted something that uh, Dorfman had uh, told a House and Senate panel about all this. He said, Dorfman said, the continuing huge tax breaks for what he called mature industries, like the film and television industry, makes much less sense than for the state to be looking to shrink or end those credits and offer opportunities for uh, uh, burgeoning. Industries to come into the state,
0: yeah, and it is—it almost feels like an academic conversation when you have a state with such a large budget surplus right now. But these are the kind of conversations that can get extremely serious and granular once you go into more of a deficit spending situation when you don't have the budgets right now—the the cushion that we have right now—and um, you could see this conversation, Tia, that well, do you want to do you want to uh, bring new EV industries here? That's going to throw off thousands of jobs. A lot of those may be more blue-collar jobs and manufacturing jobs in more rural parts of the state that benefit the areas of the state that really need it most. Or do you want to continue to support an industry that um, is, you know, to the point quite mature? The movie studios used to be making a lot of money. Apparently, they're not making as much money as they used to be. Do they really need those tax credits? So then you're starting to really wonder do you rob peter to pay paul to there you could see the industry starting to sort of have competitions amongst themselves but then you could to your point Tia, lose the film industry to another state that is willing to have those tax credits for them
1: right it's a judgment call for the state and the state of georgia could very well decide the film and tv industry is not an industry they want to prioritize further and, but I think, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Or since we're talking about economic issues, we'll say there's no such thing as a free lunch. And so I think it would be naive for Georgia to think that if they, again, rolled back the credits, reduced them, or eliminated them, I think it would be naive for the state to believe that the film and television industry in Georgia would be unchanged by those decisions. I'm not saying it would go away completely, but there would likely be change because these companies, quite frankly, are often driven by the bottom line and they can create a Georgia backdrop anywhere. Again, that that, um, article I quoted from Florida Today, there have been films and TV shows that have a Florida setting but weren't filmed in Florida because they wanted to use more lucrative tax credits in other states. Um, So again, it could be a judgment call. and, 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 And you could say there are plenty of states that aren't known for film and TV, and they're doing fine.
0: Okay, well, we will continue to keep an eye on the film tax credit and the film industry. I always wanted to be an extra on a movie.
2: So if anybody knows oh, anybody, would higher, they would bring you in in a <laughs> second. Patricia. Okay,
0: If anybody knows anybody, shoot me an email. <laughs> well, um, coming up on Friday's episode, we will talk more about uh, these issues surrounding Israel. We will certainly give the latest update on the race for speaker or the not so race for speaker. Tia will give us an update on that tomorrow. And if you have a question you'd like us to answer on the politically Georgia mailbag segment, you can now, now call in to the Politically Georgia hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer it right here on the show. That number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We can't wait to hear from you. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. We're now releasing new episodes every weekday. So be sure to look for new additions to hit your podcast feed sometime around 1 o'clock every day. All of that leads up to the October 30th debut of our new Politically Georgia radio show, which will air live Monday through Friday every morning from 10 to 11 a.m. on WABE. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter
1: for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist.